Welcome to another Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the Apostle John's revelation of Jesus Christ. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. I'm in Psalm 92 today. If you'll please stand for the reading of God's word. Beginning on Psalm 92, verse 1. It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night to the music of the lute and the harp and to the melody of the lyre. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work, and at the works of your hands I sing for joy. O great are your works, O Lord, your thoughts are very deep. The stupid man cannot know, the fool cannot understand this, that though the wicked sprout like grass, all the evildoers flourish and are doomed to destruction forever. But you, O Lord, are on high forever, for behold your enemies. O Lord, for behold your enemies shall perish, all evildoers shall be scattered. But you have exalted my horn like that of the wild ox. You have poured over me fresh oil. My eyes have seen the downfall of my enemies. My ears have heard the doom of my evil assailants. The righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock, and there is no unrighteousness in him.
have been emphasizing that this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so we have been looking at the book of Revelation through a Christological viewpoint and emphasizing that Christ is the culmination of all human history. Christ is the only Savior, the only name given among men by which men must be saved. And so it is impossible to look at the book of Revelation and think, well, this is just a prophecy book, because ultimately it is an unfolding of Jesus Christ. Now, last week, I said something almost in passing that I got a question about this week. And I assume if someone has a question about it, there are other people who are going to have the same question. So let's start by defining the three categories of people that we have found so far in the book of Revelation, because I just kind of brushed over it last week. The first group that we have encountered is what we classically call the church. That is all the saved, Jews and Gentiles, from the time of Pentecost until the rapture of the church when we are gathered away to him to meet the Lord in the air, and so will we ever be with the Lord. So the catching away of the church happens before all the events that we have read from chapter 4 right up until chapter 21. That is the group that has been gathered to chapter 19, the marriage supper of the Lamb, where we're given white robes, which are described as the righteousness of the saints, which we receive from the Father. We come back with Christ as he returns with the ten thousands of his saints, and then we are wearing the very white robes, the very righteousness that we have received at the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's that group. The book of Revelation, I keep emphasizing, is a very, very Jewish book. And you can only understand the book of Revelation by understanding the Old Testament scripture. And the more you know about Israel, and the more you understand about God's promises to Israel, the more you're going to understand the book of Revelation. That takes us to the second group. Zechariah tells us that when Christ returns to set up his kingdom, his feet touch the Mount of Olives, the Mount of Olives cleaves in half, God gives the spirit of supplication and repentance to Israel specifically so that they will look on him whom they have pierced and weep as one weeps over their only child. That is a separate event from the catching away of the church. It is Israel specifically, which is why through this period of time we've been reading about from chapter 4 to chapter 20 of the book of Revelation, this time of tribulation such as never was or ever would be again, this time that we know as the day of the Lord, this time of God pouring out his wrath on the nations of the earth. During that period, yes, there will be people who are faithful to Christ who are also described in the book of Revelation as specifically being for the law and for Christ. Those are the people, those who have been given that spirit of supplication and repentance and faith from God, those are the people who are going to withstand the final world ruler, the little horn, Antichrist, whatever nickname you want to give him. Those are the people who are going to stand for God, stand for Christ, not take the mark of the beast, Therefore, they're going to lose their heads. Those are the people who take part in the first resurrection. Now, let me be just as clear about this as I can possibly be. That is not the church, because Paul says that where the church is concerned, we who are alive and remain will not precede those who have already died. We will collectively come up out of our graves and then he says, I will show you a mystery. This is as he is writing to the Corinthian church, and he is talking about resurrection. That's the specific topic that he's talking about. And then says, I show you a mystery. We will not all die, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, this corruptible will put on incorruptibility. This mortal will put on immortality. And so that is a resurrection that occurs with the church. Are we clear so far? Then there is this 
first resurrection at the beginning of chapter 20, which specifically is all those who were willing to give their lives rather than take the mark, rather than bow down to the beast. And I have to conclude that those are primarily Israelites who have been converted during that time of tribulation. So far, so good? Then at the end of chapter 20, we read about this third group who were called the rest of the dead. And the rest of the dead are then brought back to life, resurrected, and that second resurrection is also known as the second death. You don't want to be any part of that because everybody who is part of the second death ends up in the lake of fire. That's what we read last week. So, Last week in passing, I just simply said, keep straight those three groups so that you don't get confused about who John is talking about at any particular moment. Because now in Revelation 21, we're going to start finding out what the ultimate goal is for the church, for all the redeemed of all human history. What's very, very interesting is that the Bible does not tell us a whole lot about the eternal state. Instead, the Bible tells us a whole lot about how to get to the eternal state. But it doesn't describe the eternal state in any great detail. However, Revelation 21 and 22 give us a good feel for how grand and glorious it is actually going to be. I don't think we can begin to conceive of it, but at least we are told that this is all new. There is a general newness that shows up in Revelation 21 and 22. It begins with new heavens and new earth. It includes new Jerusalem. It includes a declaration from God. He says, behold, I make all things new. And because he's making all things new, this finally makes sense of all the language we have seen in the Bible of the ultimate destruction of the heavens and the earth. Because there will be a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem, the culmination of the new covenant. God is going to make everything new. So that is the beginning of what is the age to come. Now, the reason it is important to keep those two categories straight, this age and the age to come, is because when you're talking eschatology, people bandy those terms around a lot and say this age and the age to come. Some people will tell you that this age and the age to come is all there is, and based on that, there's no room for either the seven-year tribulation or a thousand years of the millennium of the kingdom to come because they'll say we step right from this age into the age to come. Clearly, if chapter 20 precedes chapter 21, which I'm going to show you this morning, it has to, the same way that I showed you that chapter 19 has to precede chapter 20. Once you see that, you'll see that chapter 20, the millennium, The thousand years, all of that is included in this age. So there's plenty of time for all of that to occur before the age to come. Because sequentially, and we've been reading John very sequentially, what we've seen is chapter 19, marriage supper of the Lamb. There's the church getting their white robes of righteousness. We then return with Christ with his two-edged sword out of his mouth, And he defeats the nations and rules them with a rod of iron, sets up his kingdom. Chapter 20, thousand years. Thousand years starts with the resurrection to life. Christ sets up his kingdom, rules over all the nations for a thousand years, at the end of which there is a general resurrection of all the rest of the dead. They are all judged according to the things that are written in the books. They are all judged according to their works and according to their deeds. They're all cast into the lake of fire. Chapter 21 starts then with the age to come. Now this language of the age to come absolutely permeates scripture. Sometimes we kind of read by it, But I want to give you a few examples this morning 
of the age, this age, and the age to come, and the distinct differences that will prove that we are not currently in the age to come. We are currently in this present evil age. For instance, I'm going to start right at Matthew 24, just because that is also a very eschatological passage. But right in Matthew 24, at verse 3, as Jesus is having a conversation with his disciples, they are so aware of, so conscious of this concept of two ages, this age now and the age to come, that they ask him a question concerning the age to come. Chapter 24, verse 1, Jesus came out from the temple and was going away when his disciples came up to point out the buildings, the temple buildings to him. And he answered and said to them, do you not see all these things? Truly, I say to you, not one stone here shall be left upon another, which will not be torn down. That absolutely happened, 70 AD, under Titus. The temple, Jerusalem, all fell. And therefore, Jesus in that prophecy perfectly predicted what is going to happen to the temple, that it was going to fall. And that happened right there in that generation, in that time. And yet, despite knowing that, they ask the next question, verse 3. And as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming? Because they're expecting the parousia. They're expecting the presence to create the kingdom, to establish everything that's been promised to Israel. And what will be the sign of the end of the age? They are so aware of this age and the age to come that they connect his return to this age to come. He starts out by saying, see to it that no one misleads you, for many will come in my name saying, I'm the Christ, and they're going to mislead many. And you will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not frightened, for those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom in various places, and there will be famines and earthquakes, but all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs, then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you. And you will be hated by all nations on account of my name. And at that time, many will fall away and will deliver up one another and will hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and mislead many. And because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, he shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the whole world for a witness to all the nations, and then the end shall come. So that's his answer to the question. What is going to be the sign of the end, and what is the sign of the age to come? And he basically describes for them all the stuff that we've seen in the book of Revelation, all the tribulation stuff, all the difficulty on this earth. And you will notice that men do not get, according to his description, men do not get progressively better. Human beings do not increase in knowledge and morality and ultimately become good enough for Christ to come back for them. Instead, what it describes is men get worse and worse and worse, They're led away by false prophets. Nations are fighting against nations. There's wars. There's famines. There's earthquakes. Lawlessness is going to increase, and most people's love is going to grow cold. That does not sound good. Jesus' assessment of human beings is exactly like our assessment of human beings. Theologically, we know that human beings are just no darn good. Human beings are depraved. 
And knowing that human beings are all depraved, that is the necessity then of God's grace. If you're going to know anything about God, if you're going to know anything about Christ, if you're going to be drawn to the things of God or his word, it has to be his grace doing for you what you couldn't do in the first place. And he is drawing you to himself through his spirit, through the redemptive work of his son, because it can't be you. How often have you heard me say, by the way, I finally got an amen. Usually what I get from this side of the room is something like a harumph. So I'm glad to finally get an amen. Exactly. Human beings, human depravity, God's grace. That is the basis of everything that the Bible teaches, everything we believe here at GCA. There is no way, you've heard me say it time and time again, you are your problem. You want to know what your problem is? I can define it for you. What's your problem, April? Your problem's you because you're a sinner. Because we are inherently sinful, born sinful, born dead in trespasses and sins, born incapable of getting to God, you are your worst problem. And since you are your worst problem, you can't be your solution. You can't be your savior because you can't do it. You don't have the capability. So Jesus describes the world as going down, down, down into this continual cycle of sin and depravity and bloodshed and lawlessness. And then the declaration, this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached to the whole world for a witness to all nations, and then the end will come. We saw that in Revelation 14, 6. There was an angel flying in the heavens with the everlasting gospel. He preached it to all the nations in order to hold them guilty, and then the end came. Okay, so what Jesus said in Matthew 24, what John has said in Revelation all the way through chapter 4 to chapter 20 is identical here. The Greek word, ahion, become familiar with that word, basically means age. It means a period of time, a set time. In the Old Testament, God set apart certain feast days for Israel. He specified particular times that they had to come to Jerusalem in order to have feasts before him. They were in the spring and they were in the fall. There were seven of them all together. They're translated feasts or festivals in our Bible. The Hebrew word means set times because he is a God of set times. You got here exactly on the time that God wanted you to get here. You're going home exactly at the time God wants to take you home. And everything that happens in your life in between is going to happen at exactly the time God wanted to do it. I have talked to people. I could say a name now, you know, okay, Gladys. She said to me one time, I've grown up in the church. I've been in the church all my life. How come nobody ever told me this? How come nobody ever taught me this? And I said, Gladys, now was the time. God prepared you. He put you in the church. He kept you in the church. And then he brought you to his word. Because it was time in your 80s to finally tell you the truth. Everything in your life, from your birth all the way to your death, all the way into your eternity, is determined by God because he's a God of set times. He does everything on time and everything specifically. He's not guessing at anything. He's not hoping things work out. He is controlling human life. He is controlling the events of this planet he is controlling his universe. It's really good to know that somebody's in control because this world seems very out of control. Amen. See what you've done? Now you got him amening. You see that? Good. Okay, so let's talk about the age and the age to come. I'm just going to read a couple of verses here just to show you, to demonstrate to you that we are living in this present evil age the age to come is yet out ahead of us. Jesus said in Matthew 12, starting at verse 31, Therefore I say to you, 
any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven to people. Isn't that good news? But blasphemy against the Holy Spirit shall not be forgiven. This is when the Pharisees said that Jesus was doing miracles by the spirit of Beelzebub. Basically said that Jesus was able to do miracles over demons because he himself was driven by a demon. Rather than admitting that it was the Holy Spirit of God that was causing these miracles to happen. So Jesus tells them, whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him either in this age. Exact same word, ahiyam. Not in this age or the one to come. So Jesus laid out the basic time frame which is we're living in this age, this present evil age, but there is an age to come. And he keeps contrasting this age with the age to come. Matthew 13, I'm going to start reading at verse 36. Then he left the crowds and he went into the house. His disciples came to him and said, explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. You might remember that parable. He told the parable of how there were wheat and tares growing up together and how the tares, the weeds, were choking off the good wheat. So they say, okay, explain that parable to us. Well, this is helpful. I like it when Jesus explains himself. The one who sows the good seed, he says, is the son of man. The field is the world. And as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom, and the tares are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil, and the harvest is the end of the age. And the reapers are angels. So just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so it shall be at the end of the age. Does that sound familiar? That's the end of Revelation 20. When there is the general resurrection of the whole rest of the dead, and where do they end up? Lake of fire. Jesus said the same thing here. They're going to be gathered up and burned with fire, and that's going to happen at the end of this age. So based on that, we know that the end of the age happens when that resurrection, judgment, and fiery punishment happens. That's what we saw at the end of chapter 20 of Revelation. And according to Jesus, that's the end of this age. Just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall be the end of the age. And the Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness, and he will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. That's the exact same sequence that we see in Revelation 20 to 21. Jesus is very consistent. In Matthew 13, 49, he says the same thing. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous. Matthew 28, starting in verse 18, Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and in earth. This is classically known as the Great Commission. This is when he is sending his apostles out to preach his gospel. And he says to them, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe everything that I commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. In other words, we have the authority of Jesus backing up our declaration of the gospel. And even if it seems like no one's listening, even if it seems like the world is going more and more mad by the day, and boy, doesn't it. Even if it seems 
like this gospel that we're preaching is having no effect in the world, what we know for sure is that Christ has not left us even to the end of the age. And remember how he described the end of the age. He said people are going to lose their love. People are going to kill each other. There's going to be wars and destructions. When you're living through that kind of time, it's going to be easy to say, where's God in all this? Where is Jesus in all this? Is it worth it that I'm still standing up here saying this same thing over and over again and preaching the gospel of Christ, the gospel of God's sovereign grace? Is it worth saying? Jesus says, I'm with you, regardless of what it looks like, regardless of how bad it gets, even at the end of the age, I'm there with you. But he does define that there's going to be an end to this age. In Mark 10, starting at verse 28, Peter began to say to Jesus, Behold, we've left everything and we followed you. And Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now, now in this present Time, kairos is the Greek word, this moment in time, he'll get houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms along with persecutions right here, right now. But he will also be rewarded in the age to come with eternal life. Okay, so Jesus said, right now, it's tough. Right now, it's hard. Right now requires sacrifice. Right now, life is going to be difficult for you. But there is a reward. And some of those rewards are going to be tangible. Some of those rewards are going to be right now. Some of those rewards are blessings. Here, I'll prove it to you. How many of you had something to eat so far this week? That better be every hand in the place. How many of you are presently wearing clothes? Okay, that, that, that's good, yeah. How many of you drove here in a car? How many of you have a house? How many of you are sitting in comfortable chairs and walking on carpet right now? How many of you live in central heat and air conditioning? You see the blessings that you have in your life right now? Okay, well, that's all God's grace and God's goodness to you. God is providing all that for you. But then on top of that, he says, but in the age to come, you're going to get so much more than that. You're going to get eternal life which means you're going to live continually in the age to come. That's exactly what we're going to see in Revelation 21 and 22. Luke 16, 8. This is Jesus comparing how Christians, how his own followers, how his own disciples were acting versus how the world was acting. And when comparing the people of the world to his own, he compared them as being the sons of this present age. He says, his master praised the unrighteous servant, the unrighteous manager, because he was acting shrewdly. For the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. Notice the contrast. Sons of this age, sons of light. What does that imply about the sons of this age? Not sons of light. Sons of darkness. This world is a dark and evil age right now. But there is an age coming when the people who live in it are called sons of light. We're going to see very, very similar language when we get to Revelation 21 and 22. Okay, so here's a contrast that can demonstrate for sure that we're not in that age to come yet. Jesus said to them, this is Luke 20, starting at verse 34. Jesus said to them, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage. For they cannot even die anymore because they are like the angels and they are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. So there's a pretty obvious proof right from the lips of Jesus. Micah, you married? 
Presently? At this moment? Right now? Yeah, April's very happy with all your answers so far. So, Yeah, absolutely. Do you know why? Because you're in this age. And this is the age during which men marry. But there is an age coming where he says everyone is going to live continually. These sons of the resurrection. These sons of God. They're going to be like the angels and they're not going to die anymore. And therefore the necessity of producing more people, the necessity of marriage, isn't going to exist anymore. Proof positive then that we're not yet in that age to come Now, you know I can't talk about these kind of eternal, predestinary, electing things without talking about Ephesians 1. And yet, even in Ephesians 1 and 2, passages that we love here in this church, Paul's great treatises on God's electing grace, on God's predestinary will, even there he talks about the age we're in and the age to come. Ephesians 1, starting at verse 18, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling and what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. He can't even write about God's predestinary will and how all things are wrapped up in Christ without looking forward to the point where he has to say, Christ is Savior, Messiah, Lord, all power right now, but you haven't seen nothing yet. Wait till you see him in the age to come when you're going to see the surpassing glory of Christ. You know, when Christ prayed to his father, one of the reasons that he prayed that God would preserve them, he said, was so that they may see my glory. We're one day going to go and see firsthand with our own eyes the absolute glory of Christ because at this present time, he has gone to his father's house and he is preparing a place for us so that where he is, we may also be. It is all about the glory of Christ. It is all about the unveiling, the revelation of Christ. And he is revealed to us in this age. He's going to be revealed to us more fully in the age to come. Are you getting a feel for this age to come thing? Mm -hmm. It permeates scripture. Ephesians 2, starting in verse 7. But God, being rich in mercy... Because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together. Okay, I know we're talking about age to come and everything, but it's really difficult for me to read something like that and not comment on it for just a moment. Because what does this verse say about your natural state? You were dead in your transgressions. Spiritually dead because you're lawlessness against God rendered you spiritually dead. You didn't just stub your toe. It wasn't a little accident that needed a Band-Aid. You're not capable of getting up and dusting yourself off and going again. As I keep saying, you are your problem. You are dead in your transgressions against God. So how did you overcome your deadness? He made you alive, even when you were dead in your trespasses. That's remarkable grace. That's astounding kindness from God that he would look at somebody like you and say, I love him with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, I will draw him to myself. Even as he is dead in his worthless sins, in his wicked heart, dwelling among the men of this present evil age and walking according to the prince of the power of the air. 
There's nothing in you that's any good. There's nothing in you that would attract God. And while you were that dead, he made you alive. That's the best news you're going to hear this morning. That's the best news you're going to hear in your stupid little life. That's the best news anybody's ever going to tell you. The word of God tells you that when you were dead in your sins and transgressions and lawlessness and rebellion against God, he made you alive with Christ. So naturally then the next phrase is, by grace you have been saved. By unmerited favor from God who did for you what you could not do for yourself. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that, here's the purpose, here's the reason for all of that. God is in the enterprise of glorifying himself. And the reason that he's doing this, saving sinners, drawing people to himself, the reason he's doing it is so that, verse 7, so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. You get the big picture of what God's up to? God is redeeming people right now, saving people right now, drawing people right now, putting people in Christ, putting his Holy Spirit in those people for the sole ultimate purpose that when the age to come arrives, we will all see the surpassing riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. It's all about the revelation of Christ, and it's all about the glory of God through the astounding grace of God. And if you ever get a hold of that, it will just make you, it'll make your brain explode. You'll have to duct tape your head together to try to hold on to how magnificent that is. That the God of forever, the creator of heaven and earth, that God loved you, wrote your name down in the Lamb's book of life, so that when you ultimately become part of his glorious age to come and his forever kingdom, he's going to be able to open the books, point at your name and say, I knew you were going to be here because I chose you from before the foundation of the world. That's astounding grace. Yes, it is. 1 Corinthians 2.6. I'm nearly done with this age to come thing. Am I boring you yet? No. Okay, good. 1 Corinthians 2, 6. Yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature, grown up in Christ. A wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, a hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. The world will look at Christianity far too often, make fun of it, put it down, castigate it, say, oh, you weak-minded Christians, you have to have Jesus like a crutch to carry you through your life. But we, the smart ones, we know philosophy. We know the important scientific stuff. We know all about COVID. Oh, I'm sorry. Did I just throw that in? I'm sorry. Trust the science. Trust the science. Trust the leaders of this age who seem to know what they're sort of talking about. And maybe... Who knows? And yet Paul says, what we're preaching, what we're talking about, this great eternal stuff, this stuff that comes from the master of the universe, the all-omnipotent master of time, space, and reality, he is the one who gave us this information, and it's information and wisdom that the world could never figure out. The sons of this age the leaders and the rulers of this age, they can never understand it because it has to be revealed to you. It has to be 
shown to you in his word, and then his Holy Spirit has to confirm it to you for you to get any grasp of it at all. And so Paul would say, we do speak wisdom, but it's not the wisdom of this world. It's not the wisdom of this age. The rulers of this age think it's foolishness. And yet he says it is the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. The wisdom that none of the rulers of this age has understood. And that is proof that they don't understand it. Is had they understood it, they wouldn't have crucified Christ. God in his divine sovereignty made sure they never understood it. So that Christ would be crucified for the salvation of George. I mean, talk about the wisdom that the world can't even fathom. How do you figure out a God who is willing to keep some people in the dark so that they will do the genuinely evil things? Peter stood up on the day of Pentecost and he said, you with wicked hands killed the prince of life. It was wicked what they were doing. And yet it was the best thing that ever happened to anybody who was in Christ because God predestined it before the ages. And the rulers of this age don't get it. Galatians 1.3, grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of God our Father to whom be glory forevermore. Amen. Jesus gave himself for our sins, for our transgressions, for our lawlessness and trespasses against God, Christ came and paid the redemption price for us specifically to deliver us from this present evil age. Titus 2, starting at verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age, looking for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good deeds. So let's get this part clear. Every time I talk about election, predestination, God's grace, and salvation, we, because we are corrupt human beings, our corrupt little lizard brains go crazy on us and start thinking, well, wait a minute then, Jim. Are you saying that we can live any old way we want? I thought you had to do good stuff to get saved. You don't do good stuff to get saved. When God saved you, you were his enemy, and you were dead in trespasses and sins. He didn't say that he saved you because you were doing great. He didn't save you because you were the one out of all the people on the planet who proved Paul wrong when he said there's none that doeth good. No, not one. Turns out you're the one, and that God saved you because you were the one. You were in your dead flesh, in your corruption, in your rebellion, Therefore, he saved you by his grace and by his goodness, not because of your works. However, once the Holy Spirit gets inside you, remember that is a Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit of God will overtake you, and you will do good works. You won't do them to get saved. You'll do them because you are saved. And Paul puts that within the context of how we as Christians are supposed to live during this present evil age. We're to live sensibly and righteously and godly in this present age. Okay, last verse in this series of verses where I'm trying to show you the differences between this age and the age to come. Hebrews 6, just verses 4 and 5. I know there are plenty of controversies around this passage. I do have a YouTube video 
I do have an audio Q&A. I've taught on this. In fact, I have a written commentary on the website that includes this whole passage. But rather than get into the controversies, I just want you to see one thing that is definitional to Christians. For in the case of those who have been once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and have tasted the powers of the age to come and then fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. Now, if you want to know more about that second half, about they have fallen away and what exactly is impossible, you go look at one of those sources that I cited a minute ago. It's all over our website. But here's the definition of a Christian, and I just really enjoy it. You've been once enlightened. That means you were in the dark. And you've tasted of the heavenly gift. You've tasted of the Holy Spirit of God. You've tasted of Christ. You are aware. You've been awakened to the great things, the great gifts that God has given you. And you have been made a partaker of the Holy Spirit. And you have tasted of the good word of God. And you have tasted of the powers of the age to come. That means that the ultimate outgrowth of the powers of God, the ultimate glorification of God, everything he is going to show you in the age to come, everything you know now is foreshadows of it. He's getting you ready for it. He is preparing you through his word, through giving you his Holy Spirit. He has given you that heavenly gift as a foretaste of the glories divine. He's getting you ready for the revelation of his son in all his splendor and all his glory. That was all introduction. Turn to Revelation 21. I'm going to start reading in Revelation 20, verse 11, just to show sequence. And I saw a great white throne... And him who sat upon it, notice this phrase, from whose presence, the one sitting on the throne, from his presence, earth and heaven fled away, and there was no place found for them. Chapter 21, verse 1, and I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away. And when did we see that? Back in chapter 20, verse 11. That is sequence. The same way that we saw sequence from 19 to 20, the same way we've seen sequence all the way through the book of Revelation, the sequential language that John uses continues. In chapter 20, verse 11, the earth and the heaven fled away. Now let me be specific about the word heaven here. New heaven, new earth. In the Bible, you see three different levels of heavens. The first one is the atmosphere around the planet. The atmosphere where the birds fly, where the clouds are. That is referred to in the Bible as the heavens. You see phrases like the birds flying in the heavens. Then there is the heavens that are the stars, the cosmos. All of the planets, the galaxies, all of that, those are the heavens. And God shows his workmanship in the heavens, and therefore men are without excuse. Then there is what Paul refers to as the third heaven. And he says he met a man who had been to the third heaven and heard words that it wasn't right for a man to repeat. That third heaven is the place where God dwells. So when you read new heaven and new earth, don't think God is remodeling the heaven where he is. God in his perfection will cast out Satan and all his angels. He is always in the process of purifying his heaven. But by the very fact that God is in his heaven and all the earth has to be quiet before him, he doesn't have to fix his heaven. However, The heavens, the atmosphere around the earth, 
You know, we read things about like the ozone layer going bad. There is an ideal version of the earth that has been destroyed ever since the time of Adam. God is going to restore it. Let me read you a quote from George Eldon Ladd. I really like this quote. I could have just said it myself, but you would have said, well, that's just Jim. But if I say Ladd said it, then suddenly you'll, well, anyways. <laughs> Throughout the entire Bible, the ultimate destiny of God's people is an earthly destiny. In typical dualistic Greek thought, the universe was divided into two realms, the earthly or transitory, and the eternal spiritual world. Salvation then consisted of the flight of the soul from the sphere of the transitory and ephemeral to the realm of eternal reality. However, biblical thought always places man on a redeemed earth, not in the heavenly realm removed from earthly existence. That's right. That's what we're going to see now in Revelation 21 and 22, starting with a new heaven and a new earth, because God's ultimate destiny for us is on this redeemed earth. Granted, it's going to be very different. When we start reading about New Jerusalem and the measurements of New Jerusalem, clearly the planet is going to be very, very different. Clearly the heavens are going to be very, very different because New Jerusalem is going to be so tall that it would be beyond our atmosphere. And the people who get, you know, if you find out your apartment's on the top floor, no oxygen. Sorry. <laughs> so, so new heavens, new earth, new creation. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he shall dwell among them. By the way, that word dwell is the exact same Greek word as tabernacle. The tabernacle of God is among men, and he shall tabernacle among them. We're all going to live together in unity, God and man together. And they shall be his people, and God himself shall be among them. And he shall wipe away every tear from their eyes. Anybody cried lately? That is proof, that is genuine proof that we're not in the age to come yet. Because God is going to dry away every tear. There will no longer be any death. Seems like proof positive. There'll be no longer any mourning or crying or pain. Luann isn't with us this morning because she had to go to the emergency room yesterday because she was in such dire pain. But no more pain. Why? Because those are first things, and the first things have passed away. Crying, pain, death, sadness, mourning, that's all the stuff of this age. And it's done away with in the age to come. Because God says, behold, I make everything new. That is verse 5. And he who sits on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. And he said, write this down, for these words are faithful and true. And he said to me, it's done. I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. And he who overcomes shall inherit these things, and I will be his God. And he will be my son. But for the cowardly and the unbelieving and the abominable and the murderers and the immoral persons and the sorcerers and the idolaters and all liars, their place will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. 
And one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the last seven plagues came and spoke with me saying, come here, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. Next week, we will begin picking that all apart, verse by verse, because from this point forward, the book of Revelation, after all the bad news that we've read, after all the bloodshed and all the burning and after all the judgment and the lake of fire and after all that, these last two chapters just get gooderer and gooderer <laughs> continually. And so we're going to have a lot to thank God for over the coming weeks because this is our destiny on the new heavens, on the new earth. And thank God for it. Yes, let's go. When you hit your knees tonight, or later today, or before you leave this building, thank God that he was willing to do that for a wretch like you. Marvelous grace. I'm done. Jeff. This song, I had uh, had some other songs picked out for this morning and uh, at the last minute we switched to this one and not knowing what Jim was talking on but uh, let me read through these a uh, few verses it's like exactly what we talked about this morning which I thought was coincidental uh, about God's grace and then him coming to get us I know not why God's wondrous grace to me he had made known nor why unworthy Christ in love redeem it for his own I know not how this saving faith to me he did impart, nor how believing in his word wrought peace within my heart. I know not how the Spirit moves, convincing men of sin, revealing Jesus through the word, creating faith in him. In the last verse, I know not when my Lord may come at night or noonday fair, nor if I'll walk the veil with him or meet him in the air, but I know whom I have believed. So, let's sing that song.
Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.